0: Happy Mother's Day to you moms out there. Indeed, we are, uh, what we've been doing in our series that that started on Easter and Mother's Day has been close to Easter this year. I can't believe Easter was only like two, three weeks ago. It's like, that on top of each other. Um, the, um, what we've been looking at is this series called Where Faith Begins. And um, I, I, I was kind of pondering for Mother's Day, like, how do we link this all together? And it just kind of landed on the, uh, on the memory of my mom and the memory of moms in general. And uh, what, I, what I realized is that our moms cared about us in ways that nobody else really did. I can think of, there you go, Oh, I can see you, hi, good to see you guys. Uh, I remember that uh, my mom just um, loved to teach me things. She'd sit us down, teach us art, Every once in a while, she has all these paintings she had. She left, left, with, uh, left in the houses in different places. And she would sit, and she was a librarian, so she'd read to us. And oftentimes, um, now I get to sit with my kids and read. And the same way my mom read to me, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's something she gave to me. And I realized that moms are really good at uh, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that moms, uh, like dads, have trouble with, though, is promises. You ever notice that? You have this opportunity to make a promise to your kids, and you make it, and then you, you, after you're done making it, and you go home later, and home, your husband comes home, and you're talking about it, you're like, uh, yeah, you made that promise? Yeah, well, I hope they forget, because I don't know how we're going to do that. Um, for our family... One of the promises my wife made for Jonathan was, was pretty funny. Um, I, I have four kids. Jonathan's our, our second to the youngest. He's, uh, he's in kindergarten. <clears throat> and Jonathan was a, a cute guy. Got really into uh, bows and arrows and Davy Crockett and stuff like that because we'd got the old Davy Crockett videos. And he wanted a bow and arrow for Christmas. And he meant this like suction cup bow and arrow. So his mom told him, yes, you're going to get a bow and arrow for Christmas. And I'm like... We, okay, that thing was like a. She's like, we're gonna find one that doesn't break. And this thing was a dollar store bow and arrow that uh, that had a little suction cup at the end. And so she goes online. She manages. She's like, I got it. I figured it out. I'm like, okay, cool. You, you're gonna, you know, we're gonna hold to this promise. She's like, yeah. I found a great twenty five dollar. It's like twenty bucks. It's good, perfect. It's not gonna break. It looks pretty durable. I'm like, Oh, this will be great. So we have it on video. My son's all excited. He gets the he gets the bow. It had been like it, we got it like on the night before Christmas and my wife just wrapped it and threw it downstairs. so I hadn't seen it yet. And so he unwraps and he pulls it out. I'm videotaping. I'm like, that's a compound bow. That's a real bow. It's got a little pulleys on the end, 15 te- you know, fifteen pounds of test behind. I'm like going, oh, and my, my other son got a BB gun and they're all scared of the BB gun. I'm like, you're scared of this, this thing over here. That thing's... And I just love it. It was just a, one of those random times where my wife just, she made this promise, and she went through with it, and she landed on My son still loves that thing when we pull it out. He's still too young to use it, but um, it's just one of those cases where promises are a big deal. I mean, you'll find that the promises your parents have made you help you rely on how much you trust God. And all, I find it's fascinating, the way that our parents act, and They're oftentimes how we think God acts. That oftentimes the promises and things our parents give us, if they didn't land through, we kind of think, ah, God's not going to answer his promises. And yet I want to challenge us with this concept because promises are important. Trusting in promises are important when it comes to God. And as we're talking about this word faith, where faith begins, we all know that we could replace the word faith. We could just insert the word trust. trust. Where does trust begin? Well, and we said it starts with evidence, and so a few weeks ago, back at Easter, we laid out the evidence for the, res, the historicity, for the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if you haven't been a part of this series, I encourage you to go back and check out that Easter sermon and the following ones, because then we move forward, um, not in time, but we move forward in logic, and we said, well, wait a minute, some of us may have trouble with the idea that somebody could rise from the dead, so let's just take a minute and ask the question, is there even a God? And so we went back to the creation. We looked at Genesis 1. We laid out the very evidences of the existence of God found through science and through logic. And and we came to some conclusions there. And last week we said, well, there's no connection between Jesus being resurrected and and God existing. How do we connect those two? And we sat down and we looked at the evidence that is there for the Exodus. And where God came and he showed himself powerful in history that this event has occurred. And he says, look at this event of the Exodus. This has happened therefore I am with you. And Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people. He's the the king of the Jews. And so he's connected with this and God rose him from the dead as part of some promises that he had made to Israel. What I want to do tonight is really begin to dive into this question. How can we really trust God? How can we really begin to trust his promises? And we know in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it states this up here on the screen for me, if you will, throughout that verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the convictions of things not seen. What are the things we're hoping for in this verse? The answer is we're hoping for God's promises, we're hoping for him to answer the things that he's promised us. Well, how in the world do we trust that? Some of you guys may be here tonight and you're not Christians. That's, we understand that. And you may be here because, you know, you're here for mom or you're here because your kiddo was part of the preschool thing. And really, my, my hope tonight is not to do any, anything but take you. Maybe you're over here on a quite doubtful, very doubtful. Maybe you're somewhat doubtful or uncertain about the why Christians believe what we believe. Maybe as a Christian, you're here tonight and you're kind of like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm good with that. I just have faith. You know, you're know, you not certain. You couldn't lay out any evidence for it. And this goal tonight, as part of this, is just to help all of us move one step over. That's what we've been doing every series, just kind of every, every single sermon in this series, just challenging us to think, well, are you a little bit more certain about this today? And I think what we're going to look at tonight is one of those most mind-blowing sections of, of this kind of thinking of the evidence as you'll ever run into. While well, you can wonder about the creation, you can wonder about my scientific facts, you can look at archaeology and go, ah, there's other ways to interpret things. You could look at the resurrection and maybe, I, don't, I still think it's hard, come up with another idea. When it comes to the evidence we look at tonight, I just think that it is just so difficult to ignore because it is so, so interesting and it's about God's promises, What we're going to do tonight is realize that God cares about us so much that he was willing to answer his promises in the past and today. And it starts with this, that God showed he cared for us by answering his prophecies, about the Messiah, about the Christ, that he answered these detailed prophecies of the Messiah. And what is this Messiah? The Messiah is the anointed king. It is the name, is the, the Jewish word for Christ. And when we dive into the Bible, what you're going to find is this book is pretty big. You got the New Testament, which starts talking about Jesus, and that's roughly about here. The rest of the book is called the Old Testament, and inlaid in this, are hundreds of prophecies about the coming Christ, this Messiah, this one who would come and who would uh, fulfill all the hopes and the desires and the dreams that Israel had been promised. What we're going to do is we can't look at 300 of them. We all fall asleep and you're like, this is the worst Mother's Day thing I've ever heard in my life. But what I want to do is we're just going to take a few of them. We're going to dive in. I'm going to just kind of give you some of these so we can get an idea of how particular and how accurate these are. We're going to start with just some beginning places with Jesus' life and how he begins to fulfill these. Like, and he fulfills all of them but the future ones, which he's guaranteed to fulfill. But check this out. This is radically interesting. Let's just start. With the idea of Jesus' birth. well, And I'm not even going to go into the virgin birth or anything else. Let's just say we're going to pick one thing that Jesus couldn't control about prophecy. And that is the location of his birth. The location of his birth was in the city of Bethlehem, as all of us know, no, but it was prophesied that it was going to be in the birthplace by a man named Micah in Micah chapter five, verse two. Up here behind me is going to be a timeline. This timeline represents back here at 1000 BC, all the way up to 100 AD. Now you got to know Jesus lived and existed between the zero and the hundred on this side. He, lived a third, he died in 30 or 33, depending on your, your position, but he was born somewhere at 2 to 5 BC and lived on through that time period. On this side, you're going far back to about the time of David in about 1000 BC, and Micah lived in 730 BC, 730 years roughly before Jesus was born. He pens what you're reading on the screen on your left. But you, O Bethlehem, I hate this word, Pathrethah, um, who who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And you think that's nice, but you got to realize this is the birthplace of David, but it was a little bywater town. If a king was going to be born in power, why not be born in Jerusalem where all the other kings had been born before? And yet the prophet Micah stands up, it's 730 BC, and he says to the people of Israel, he says, listen, the, few, the coming Christ, this Messiah, because this is a messianic prophecy according to the Jewish people, they say, our Christ will be born in the town of Bethlehem, not the northern Bethlehem. That's why he specifies, What that word right there means the one near Jerusalem in the south. There, You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. But then he says this, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So this is one who is older than the day of his birth. This is one who, who, has a, who has a background that's coming from far, far back. And that is exactly what we begin to see in the description of who Jesus is. Now what we see is Jesus is this one who was born in Bethlehem in roughly about 450 BC somewhere in there and he there in that time period fulfills us now also it's interesting that from this point on Christianity has always viewed Jesus as god incarnate which is what this is trying to say the only time this other phrase from is from of old from ancient days is used is used of god in the in the bible And so it's a strange connection, but we won't have to focus on the second part. Let's just say, look at this, picking all the towns of all the cities in Jerusalem, of all the cities in the world, he says the Messiah is going to come from this town of Bethlehem. And Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem. Now we move forward, though, to this, that he has promised the king's entrance on a donkey. In 420 BC, Zechariah showed up. Zechariah was kind of an interesting prophet. He writes in very odd terminology, but he was very clear at this one moment when he states this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey. Now, if you've studied anything in the New Testament, you'll run into Matthew and in Luke and also in, in Mark. Where the Jesus says, hey guys, I'm going to go into in the city. There will be a donkey and a, co- and a foal of the donkey tied up in this town. Go get him and bring it to me. And on what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in, being announced as the king, riding on a donkey, representing to everyone that he is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. Now, Jesus had control over this one. And we could say, ah, that's just Jesus' uh, manipulation. He's the, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, and he goes, I'm this Bethlehem kid, and I'm going I'm to go ahead and say that I'm the Messiah. I'm going to get on a donkey, and we're going to prove this. Well, that's interesting. You could say that until you start hitting the next pieces. And I'm kind of just breathing through these to give you some ideas. But let's look at this, because... What happens is then Psalm 22 is written in 1000 BC. Now note, this is indeed written back here. We have this man named David. And he wrote this Psalm in Psalm 22, 1000 BC. This is a thousand years before Jesus walks the earth. And We have evidence. We have this Psalm written in paper on papyrus. We have it on, on a piece of paper that predates Jesus. So we know this is correct. We know it's accurate. It's not been changed by Christians later. In Psalm 22, we wind up with some very things. In fact, Jesus on the cross quotes this psalm. While hanging on the cross, he yells out, "Elohai Elohai lama sabachthani, and it means this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very beginning of Psalm 22. And it was an, in, it was an indicator, it was a call to pick up the psalm and read it. And it gets strange as you begin to work your way into it. At first it says it's a Psalm of David. It's about David just struggling with some some people who are persecuting him and challenging him. But then it begins to move forward. It says this But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Go ahead. That's that was correct. Go back. You're good. mock me. They they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. What's interesting is these are very close, if not the accurate words of the statements of those Jewish people that were surrounding Jesus at the cross yelling, Hey, if he says he's the son of God, let him come down to the cross. God cares about him. And it says they were wagging their heads at them, which is mocking him and, and making fun of him. It goes on, and it says this in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs in, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet." The picture of your bones being extended, of your arms being pierced, and your legs being pierced have always echoed to the Jewish people and to Christian people that this is crucifixion. The problem is that crucifixion isn't invented until 500 B.C. How can they nail the accuracy of this picture when the the very cross wasn't invented yet? The very accuracy of not just, not just the fact that this is something that Jesus can't control. He couldn't control how he was going to die. They could have beheaded headed they just could have killed him. He could have died of a disease. They could have stoned him, which is more likely would have been the case. Because it was the Romans who crucified and the Jewish people who stoned. Why in the world would Jesus find himself on a cross According to this psalm, it was what the Messiah, which is called the Messianic psalm, was what the Messiah was intended to go through. He was intended to find himself stretched out on a cross. It says his tongue stuck to his mouth. We know that Jesus was thirsty, extremely thirsty, to the point where he was willing to drink... The, what was ever given to him up on the cross. We know that he was surrounded. It gets even some stranger when he says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All three eyewitnesses of the, of the, resur- of the crucifixion who write about this say that they sat down and they started, the guards took his tunic and started gambling over it in order to win the tunic. They didn't want to tear it apart. And the crazy thing about this is that is historically accurate. They would do this in the Roman time period with people 's clothing it 's not just made up in the text it 's something we see that has gone on that men would they would gamble over the clothing in order to collect whatever these people who were dying up there were going to wind up with so this is a very, very peculiar passage that has very clear just clear, clear, clear representation in history that this was prophesied way back here in 1,000 B.C. and 1,000 years later it comes accurately in the same person. Now notice this. I haven't just said that Jesus should be just, that this could come about with all these different people. It's supposed to be one person, one Messiah, one person born in Bethlehem, one person who's supposed to ride in on a donkey declaring as the king, one person who's supposed to be crucified, one person who's going to have his garments you know, sitting before him, one person who's going to have all these things go on. And it goes on to point out everything from the virgin birth to all these pieces that come rolling in, it, it, just 300 of them. But the most insane one to me, the one that blows people's minds the most to me is this one by Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a very long book. If you haven't gotten through the book, I understand it's a difficult book. But when you get to the second half of the book, starting in chapter 40 and moving forward, you run into something very interesting. You run into him talking about this person who's called the servant. I don't know what that popping is. We'll try to figure that out. Sorry about that. This, the, what's going on is this servant exists, and this is called Yahweh's servant. In Psalm 53, which was written here in 680 BC, this is before Israel. Right after this, Israel's going to be kind of devastated. In's going to come a very large group of, uh, of people called the Babylonians and wipe out the Israelites and take them into captivity. And so he's going to prophesy about that event, but what he does first, after that prophecy is he starts declaring this, behold, my servant shall, shall act wisely. In fact, why don't you go there? Go to page 613 with me. Grab a Bible and te- you want to look at this. This is so mind-blowing. You're not going to want to put this down. In fact, what I've done with this verse, I've sat down with my, disi- my guy I've discipled who never read this. and I just said, just read it out loud and tell me who it's talking about. And it's, it's fascinating how accurate this passage becomes. Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, beginning 52, beginning verse 13. It reads this way. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which has not been heard, they understand. Now this is interesting. Whoever this person is, whoever this servant is, is supposed to go through some kind of horrible situation where he's marred to not look like himself. To be abused at the point where he is not clearly represented to be himself anymore. And that it's going to be so much that nations wonder at him. Not just one nation, but the nations themselves. This is the word ethnos. This is the many nations they're going to be sprinkled their kings are going to shut their mouths over this person which means they're just going to honor him and be like this we listen you know there's no there's not a lot of people you can pick out in history that have been that way and yet it goes on who has believed what we what he heard, heard what who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he speaking of the servant grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. And this is interesting because the root conversation comes back to this conversation of the root of Jesse. Jesse was the, was the, um, the dad of, um, of David the king. Now, if you don't know the Bible, David was the great heroic uh, leader of Israel and he was considered the closest to God uh, of all the kings. Anybody who was going to be a king was going to be like him. And what happens is they somehow though dry ground is a reference that this means there's not been any kings for a while. And that's very clear. After this event with Isaiah in the, fi- in the 600s, between 600 and 500, after that point, there are no more kings. You get a whole, no more kings of David. The kings of David never come back. It's dry ground all the way through. Now, you knew if you were part of the Davidic line, but you lived in an esoteric, small, out-of-the-way town to keep yourself safe from the king of the Jews, namely Herod, and you lived in a town called Nazareth, which is where the people of the, the, the leadership, the, the Davidic line stuck around and put themselves in history. What is interesting is Jesus is born in Nazareth. He's of that lineage. He's, he's of that people. And, what's it, and so we see that whoever this guy is, he's going to come up out of dry ground. Yet he's going to have no form or majesty that we should look at him. He's going to be in obscurity in a sense and no beauty that we should desire him. And all of Israel's leadership ignores him, doesn't look to him. He's an obscure peasant from the edge of a a giant empire. And yet, countries close their mouths at him. Kings are amazed. Then it goes on. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we, speaking of Israel, esteemed him not. Surely, verse 4 says, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. When they think of this person, they would say, we thought of him as one who was rejected by God and destroyed. And that's exactly how Israel thought of him. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. When you see a cross, they considered it wood. And a tree was anything standing up that was made of wood. And so they said, if you were hung on a cross, you were cursed by God. They viewed him as one cursed by God. They viewed him as one who carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. So the truth is, he carried something. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those two words mean sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. There's been a peace with God made is what he's talking about. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is the imagery that they had wandered away from their shepherd. They had wandered away from their Lord. God himself. And that was their iniquity. That was their willful sin. And he says, I took that and I laid it on this servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus kept his mouth shut throughout the entire, the entire time he was being judged. He didn't fight back. He didn't do anything to keep himself from being crucified. He just let it happen. Why? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers is silent, as he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So this wasn't his choice. He's drugged away without a choice. And as for his generation who who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave. Notice this. You can't control where you're going to be buried, but they made his grave the with the wicked and the with the rich man in his death. The first half is they made his death, his grave, this idea he's between two men who are wicked. And in his grave, he's put in with the rich man where the rich man's tomb is. Though that it had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Wait a minute. How does the man who dies now see his offspring? He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Speaking of his resurrection. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. My friends, what you're reading here is one of the most detailed prophecies of ancient history to the point where the very details come lining up in things that Jesus can't, be, can't control. How he would die, where he would end up in a grave, what he would be num- why he would be numbered among transgressors, that he would be crucified before the Passover, on the Passover night when you would slaughter the lambs as a symbol of them taking on the sin of the people. All of this lines up to this Isaiah. Now we have even more complications. We got a guy who's supposed to be crucified somehow, and be a part of some suffering. Now his sufferings have been considered an atonement. He had to be born in Bethlehem. And he had to ride in on a donkey. And it goes on and on. God, it was very detailed in these promises to reveal to us that he fulfills promises. He exists and he answers these things. It's been said for just eight prophecies, just eight of them to be found in one human being, you could fill the entire state of Texas with quarters up to two feet deep. Mark one quarter and throw it out in the middle of Texas and then take somebody blindfolded and send them out there. They'd have to pick it up on their first try. That's how astronomical the odds are. It goes on to be even crazier to me as we begin to look at some of these other pieces, see God even limited the timetable of when the Messiah could come. We could say, oh, it could still happen in the future. Somebody else could match up. No, because God limited the timetable and and to show us that he is faithful. And we see this in in another chapter, in another prophet named Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24 through 27. Daniel lived in 480 BC in part of that exile. He lived when they were out in Babylon, working for the Babylonians, and he had had a dream, and he prophesied this. He says, there are 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, speaking to the Jewish people, and this is an angel giving him this prophecy, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Those are the things that this person is going to accomplish within the end of the this time. Sin is going to be dealt with. Atonement's going to be made. Iniquities are finished. Vision and prophecy are over. They're going to be solved. And so he says this, no, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. Now, what we realize is this is, um, these are seven weeks. What they mean by that is seven weeks of years, seven times seven, 49 years. And what we find here, very interesting, is in the book of Daniel, and I need to turn here real quick, is that we end up with the decree being given, and go ahead and click onto the next verse for a second. Go on to the, to the center here for me. Go ahead forward. What we see is the decree occurred in 457. It was a decree given by the Persian rulers to go rebuild Jerusalem, given by Cyrus. And Cyrus, the the leader, he says, listen, go fulfill it. 49 weeks in, go ahead and click that next one, Jerusalem was rebuilt in 408 BC. You already had its moat filled in, you had everything else. And that's what he's reading here. Listen as as I continue in the prophecy so you can hear what he says. And I got to catch up here. So he says, these 70 weeks are there. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word and restore the builder of Jerusalem, the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So, now, the way that we read this right now, because it can be different in your Bibles depending on how you want to use the Masoretic text. This is probably speaking of Ezra or Nehemiah. Then the 40, Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, Um, but in troubled time. The the square and the moat were finished in 408 BC. We know that for a fact. In fact, go on to the next click. 434 years, which it predicts, go on forward. What's interesting is when you hit 343 years, it lands us in AD 27. What happened in AD 27 is interesting. It says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This anointed one appears, on 27 B.C., baptized by John the Baptist, namely Jesus Christ, by the year 30, BC, 30 A.D., go ahead and click the next one, he is, the Messiah is cut off, detailing exactly what it is. How do we know that this is how it's supposed to work? Because there's no other time frame that's given. In fact, what happens, here's the clearest point. He says this, after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So it was rebuilt. Now it's going to be destroyed. We know in AD 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And the temple that they're speaking about in this section has to be gone. The Messiah had to show up before the second temple was wiped out. There is no other candidates left. No other person born in Jerusalem, no other person born in Bethlehem, no other person finds himself riding on the donkey and um, being crucified on a cross, being cut off, fulfilling this atonement. So the very things Daniel said need to occur would occur. All of this lands in place before 70 A.D. when the Jews rise up in revolt and Rome marches in and wipes out. In fact, by by a few centuries later, all of Jerusalem will be leveled and they will rename it Antiochia Capitolina, and they will allow no Jewish people in the city at all. This is mind-blowing. This was written in 480 B.C., 480 years before Jesus was born. All of these pieces written way before Jesus was even alive. Is God not faithful with his promises? Should we not trust that he will fulfill his promises when he gives them to us? See, God cares and he holds to his promises now. Where does faith begin? Yes, it can stand on evidence, but it moves to us actually trusting him today. It moves from us saying, yes, I get that God exists. Yes, I get Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, I get he died on a cross for my sins. Yes, I get that I've got a future with him. But now he says, won't you trust my promises today? Won't you trust that I've given you the promises now? He knew we needed a sin bearer. He gave us all these promises ahead of time. And here they are fulfilled for us. The question is, are we willing to see all of this evidence and take that final, just simple, small step? Yes, there's a creator. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, this exodus happened. Yes, God predicted his Messiah. Yes, he even predicted he would bear our sins. And he did. And now we have this opportunity to take a simple step to trust. So what do we do? What do we do? I think we begin by learning the promises of God. I think as Christians and as people who see that God is so faithful, we need to be reading this book, and we need to take in those promises of God. We need to learn them. Take them in. We need to realize that he has promised us in Matthew seven eleven that God will answer our prayers. So we should be a people praying, should we not? On our knees, begging God to bring, a, to bring about his work in this world. John 15, five says if says, you, if you're connected with me, you're going to bear fruitful character. You're going to bring people to Christ. You're going to have this. So stick with me, connect with me. Let me abide in you like a branch abides in a vine. Shouldn't we be deeply in the word of God then? Shouldn't we be trusting that regardless of how much we get it or what, God's going to bring about things. Because we're abiding with Him, shouldn't we realize in First John one ten it says, "If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness." That most of what we're doing is we're just hiding our sins and we're shoving them in a closet because we don't trust God's promise. And that's the second part. Once you know the promise, aren't we willing to trust it? Are you willing to? You're, once you see the chair is 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 good, are you are you going to put your weight in it and sit down? Or you can just tell people, yeah, it's a good chair. It's a good chair for them, not a good chair for me. It's a good chair for them. If you need to sit down in a chair that's been offered to you by God, we need to sit down in it. We need to trust it. We need to put our weight in it. If God's given us the promise that we run after him, he's gonna fill in all the things we need. Why wouldn't we trust after him? Why wouldn't we run after him? Why wouldn't we do this? God has shown us in detail How willing he is to fulfill his promises. That's mind blowing. And it should be encouraging to us to not just have faith, but have a conviction that God has done these things and have backbones when it comes to that conviction that God will continue to come through. We get to trust Him. Especially when it comes to the greatest promise that He's given to us, which is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why did He take all this time to show us that? So that we would trust Him, that when He tells us we'll be resurrected and have eternal life, we can know He's powerful enough to do so, and that he never lies about his promises. That's way better than a compound bow from our moms. That's way better. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, maybe tonight you're here as a guest, and I hope that your mind's is blown away by this information as mine was. And you see that God has given you just a grand opportunity to receive a gift. See, what God has given in his promises is this this idea of eternal life. You see, Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins. All the iniquity, all the stuff we've done against God that sits in our past can't be made up for by good works. You can't clean it up. It can't be erased by learning from them because we weren't supposed to do them in the first place. The only thing God has ever said that covers sin is a sacrifice. And we don't have anything left to sacrifice. And so he provided Jesus Christ to bear our sins, to cover it over, and to deal with it, so that at the day of judgment, we don't stand for our sins, but Jesus stood for them in our place. Here's the beautiful thing. It's a gift. Just like our life was a gift when we received it, when we got it at the beginning, we didn't ask for it. God wants to give this gift to you, you didn't ask for it. You maybe you weren't even looking for forgiveness of sins. Maybe you weren't looking for a right relationship with God. But God is trying to wake us up to say, that's what we need. And you can be forgiven of all the things, all those skeletons in your closet, all the junk that we try to hide. He covers it, clears it up, and gives you a relationship with him. He gives you a reason to live because he comes into your life and starts building into you who you really are so you can truly live for what he's called you to be. All that's in that gift of receiving Jesus Christ as your sin bearer. And maybe tonight that's what you need to do right where you're at. If you see these promises and you realize, yes, God exists, that he has been truthful and he has provided this sin bearer for you and you've never received it, give you a chance to do so tonight that's where you're at, would you, and you would like to receive that gift of the forgiveness of sins and the covering of sins so you can have that relationship with God. If that's where you're at, would you just let me know? I'd love to join with you in a prayer. Just put your hand up, and you're saying, yes, that's me tonight. I am ready to receive that gift from God. If that's where you're at, you'd like, you can join with me in this prayer. You say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I ask that you would forgive me because I trust that Jesus Christ bore my sins on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And I trust that you have fixed my relationship through Jesus with you. I ask that you would come into my life and lead me from here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.